Thanks for listening to the podcast from Old Town Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Old Town Church is passionate about making disciples for the glory of God in Old Town and around the world by inviting people to know the gospel, experience biblical community, and live on mission. If you're in the Rock Hill area, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday. If you're not in our area, we encourage you to find a gospel-believing church near you. We hope this podcast is a blessing to you as we seek to follow Jesus and the grace of his gospel. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name is Debbie Garrick. I'm one of the partners here at Old Town Church. And please join in uh, listening as we open up God's word for the sermon today from Philippians 4, starting with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Old Town Church. If this is uh, your first time here, I'm Trevor, one of the pastors. Really a joy to be with you this morning. Don't you hate that moment when your iPad doesn't open up? Got it. Don't you worry. We are here, and we are good to go. Um, It is a joy to be with you. I do invite you to open with me your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 4. We've been studying the book of Philippians for the semester now. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi and urging them to be united, to be joyful in the gospel. And so as we begin our study today, uh, let me pray for our time together. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can know you through your Word. And God, we, hope that, uh, we, we pray that you would help us to see your heart, that you would draw us closer to you as we sit under the preaching of your word, God. We thank you for your kindness and this opportunity to, to hear what you would have to say for us. And so we pray uh, that you would use this time to change us more into the likeness of your son for the good of your people and the glory of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, the year was 1864 during the Civil War when famous American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat beside his wounded son in despair. Longfellow's life was riddled with tragedy. His first wife died years before during labor. His second wife died in a terrible fire that scarred him as he tried to to save her. His face and his arms, his hands were badly burned in his heroic attempt to save her. And on the Christmas following her death, Longfellow wrote in his journal, which he often wrote in a journal, and he wrote that year, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays. On the year anniversary of her death, he would write again in his journal these words, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Later that year on Christmas in 1862, he would write, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. 
And then in 63, he received word that his son Charles, who was a soldier in the army, was severely wounded. He'd been shot in battle. The bullet traveled across his back and nicked his spine before exiting his shoulder. He barely missed being paralyzed. That Christmas, there was no entry in Longfellow's journal. Longfellow found himself distraught. He found himself at the mercy of a dark and turbulent and chaotic world, a world without peace. And because of that, his own soul lacked a sense of peace. Now, maybe you can identify with Longfellow's sadness and despair, especially in the Christmas season. Maybe you identify personally, right? You've experienced tragedy, and that, that's fresh when it comes to uh, this particular season of the year. Maybe it's just the uncertainty of your future. Strained relationships, struggling marriages, coldness of faith. Maybe you're simply aware of this in the world, right? Nations at war, political strife, sickness, violence, the list can go on and on. And as we've been studying Philippians, we need to remember that Paul identifies as well. He understands life in a chaotic world that is marked by sin and suffering. And Paul's audience, the church in Philippi, they understand as they fight to be faithful under the threat of persecution. They know the struggle. And then you get in Paul's letter to chapter four, chapter four, verse one, and he urges them to stand firm in the Lord. Now it's important to see what Paul's doing leading up to our passage today, right? Paul has just put forward at the end of chapter three, this really big cosmic eternal truth. Look back at chapter three, starting in verse 20. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then he tells them in 4.1 to stand firm in light of that big truth, right? Stand firm because your citizenship is in heaven. Be steadfast because Christ will transform your body to be like his. And then you get to chapter four, verse two. And Paul walks us through then the application of this standing firm in the Lord, right? In light of this glorious reality, we can stand firm. And so now, what does that look like? How does that play out? He's given us the big principle, right? This big cosmic truth. And now he's going to give us applications of it. And Paul gives us five ways that we stand firm in the Lord. Five ways that we live in light of this glorious truth at the end of chapter 3. Now, the first of these we looked at last week, right? Paul exhorting Judea and Syntyche, and by extension, the whole church, to be united in the gospel of God. He tells them in chapter four, verse two, to agree in the Lord because their names are written in the book of life. He says, you've been saved by the grace of God. This is the good news, this is the gospel. And so remember who you are. Ladies, remember whose you are. You're citizens of heaven. You're being sanctified. One day you'll be glorified. You'll be like Christ. And that glorious reality should unify you. It should unite you regardless of disagreements. So see your situation in light of this bigger glorious truth. He encourages them to be united in the gospel of God. And in the rest of our section today, verses four through nine, he gives us the other applications of this glorious truth. He gives us four additional ways to stand firm in a chaotic world. We're going to see that he tells us to rejoice in the grace of God, to trust in the power of God, to dwell on the goodness of God, and then to rest 
in the peace of God. And so let's dive into this together. Number one, rejoice in the grace of God. Look what he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now this is perhaps one of the hardest sayings in all of scripture, right? This is a great memory verse if you need one, but it's really hard to apply this, right? What are you, what are you talking about, Paul? He says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says to do it always. This is, this is an imperative. This is a command that he's giving us. The Christian life should be marked by an ability to rejoice in any circumstances. Now, how can that be? Well, it's important to see that this is not a blind joy. We're to rejoice, he says, in the Lord. He's reflecting back on these wonderful truths that he's just written. Right, chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We have a Savior who's coming back. Verse 21, he will transform us to be like him. Chapter 4, verse 3, your name, Christian, is written in the book of life. So in light of all that, have a deep, lasting joy in the promise of God. You who have come from death to life, whose names are written in the book of life, rejoice. Praise him. Live a life marked by praise. And so how do we do that? Well, again, a life that rejoices in any circumstances only comes when we begin to see all of our circumstances in light of the bigger picture. You're a citizen of heaven, not of this world. You've got a glorious future. Your lowly body with all of its limits and aches and sickness and decay and dying will be transformed into a glorious body, which is really encouraging for those of us who don't run every day, right? You will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. What a, what a hope you have. What a promise you have. What a great God you have. And so when we see our circumstances through the lens of God's immeasurable goodness, we can rejoice because we know we're seeing from the right perspective. I know, God, I know what you are ultimately going to do in my life and in this world. And so I can trust you today. I can rejoice in your promise to me today because I know what's coming. I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas ever since I was a kid. And you think back to being a kid, right? What's the most exciting thing about Christmas? Presents, right? Listen, if, you, if you just said, Jesus, don't lie to me. You were thinking presents as a kid. It was presents, right? And I think what's more exciting than simply the idea of presence, right, is when you see that present under the tree with your name on it, right? There is a specific gift with my name on it under the tree. I see it. I know it's there. So what do you do? You pick it up, right? You try to shake it a little bit. Maybe you kick it, right? You're not trying to like shake it. You're trying to actually just kick it. Like, I don't want to be that, that bold. Maybe you are arrogant and bold enough to just try to peel back the wrapping paper and then arrogant enough to think you can put it back without anybody noticing. We always notice. Don't you lie to us, right? But it's the gift that has your name on it, right? I know on Christmas morning, that particular gift is mine. That joy is coming. So I can have joy now because there is a greater joy coming when I get to unwrap that. Right, Christian, rejoice. God has been wonderfully gracious to you, not just because he has saved you, but he has assured you a glorious future and it has your name on it. What a great gift. 
And when we experience God's grace to us, then it changes the way that we live with other people, right? It changes our relationships. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, this is an interesting word that is translated often reasonableness. It's a word uh, it's actually difficult to translate well. The Bible may have the word gentleness, or yours may have even moderation. The idea here is what Tim Keller called a radical evenness of temper. Here's what he means. Paul is essentially saying, let it be known that the source of your joy is the supreme excellency of Christ and what he has accomplished for you in the gospel. Do not be more joyful about the things of this world than you are about the beauty and the glory of Christ. Be reasonable about where you put your joy and where you find your joy. Perhaps the best illustration of this is uh, in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus has sent out the 72 disciples and they come back. They come back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus responds to them. He says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Let that be known in the way that you treat people and interact with people. You see, what you find your joy in, when it's, when it's found in the right place, it will produce in you a gentle spirit toward others. Because rightly placed joy in the gospel produces humility and gentleness. God's grace has saved us. We have, we have no reason for pride. We have no basis for pride. And so we're free to show grace to others because God has been gracious to us but it also produces in us caution. The same caution that Jesus gives the disciples in Luke 10, right? Don't look for your joy in other people, in the things of this world, in your accomplishments, however good they might be. Be reasonable in the weight that you give these things and focus on God's grace to you. Rejoice in the Lord. The grace of God changes us. It, it makes us joyful people who are gracious and gentle in return. This is why the British evangelist George Mueller wrote, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Mueller said that's the most important thing every day, to make his soul happy in the Lord. When our joy is rightly placed, then our grace toward others can be freely given. And so stand firm by rejoicing in the grace of God. Number two, trust in the power of God. Look at verse number six. He writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says, don't be anxious about anything. And so, then he says, but, right? And so if, if we ignore what comes after the word but, right, we're, we're going to be anxious. He says, don't be anxious, but. So we, we're going to have anxiety if we ignore what comes after that. And Paul says, instead of living with anxiety, develop a pattern and a posture of prayer. And someone might say, well, you're just telling me to pray more, right? And all my, all my worries and anxieties will go away. That sounds pretty cheap. That sounds pretty short-sighted, overly simplistic. 
And I would agree with you if you think that. But that's not what Paul's doing. Paul isn't just telling us to pray more. Paul is doing something very specific here. He's telling us to pray in a very specific way. He gives us a practice and a posture. He tells us to make our request known to God. How do we do it? That's the practice. He says by prayer and supplication. Through prayer and supplication, we make our request known to God. Now, how do we do it? What's the posture we do it in? With thanksgiving. He says, first, come to God. And as you do, bring all your worries and your anxieties and your concerns, your, your fears and your troubles, and do it thankfully. We come in a posture that, that thanks God for what he has done and what he is going to do. There's an expectation. We thank him for what he's done, right? It's what he reminds the women in verse 3. Your names are in the book of life. God has saved you. He has rescued you. He has adopted you. God has brought you from death to life. He's promised you glory. And so never get over your salvation. But we also come in a posture that thanks him for what he will do. We bring our cares and our worries to him expectantly. God, I'm, I'm anxious and I'm, I'm worried about this in my life. And I don't know what the other side of this looks like, but I know that you love me, and I know that you are working out even this situation for my good. And so thank you now for what you are going to do on the other side of this that I can't even see. That's the posture. And so we pray with thankfulness because we can pray with expectation. And how do we come? How can we be so expectant like this? Because we pray to a specific person. We pray to God. And who is God to you? Well, listen, regardless of whether you're, not, you're a Christian or not, God is first and foremost your creator. He made you. He gave you life. God is also your sustainer. The very breath that you are taking now is a gift from him. But he's not only your creator and sustainer, he is the creator and the sustainer of the entire cosmos. He created it all with his word. He holds it all together with his power. And if you are a Christian, he is far more than all of this. He is your father who adopted you, your savior who has redeemed you. He is the spirit who has given you new life and who lives in you. He is your prince of peace. He's the one who raises you from the dead. He is your advocate who intercedes to the father for you. He is your wonderful counselor, your closest friend, your wise and perfect king. He knows your life and he sees the big picture of eternity. And so you can trust him because he is powerful enough to care for you. And then we have a promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We see here that prayer can produce peace. Right? Peace is the antidote to anxiety. Now, it's important to clarify what we mean by peace. By peace, we don't mean the absence of trials and suffering. Right? Peace is not a, an absence of problems, but as one author put it, a reflection on the presence of divine sufficiency in the midst of our problems. Meaning, it's a peace of knowing that our God is creator and sustainer of the cosmos and that he's got us. I'm going to be all right. Notice that this peace will guard your hearts and minds. The word Guard here is a military word, just like an army marching out to protect. That's what God's peace does for us. It, it surrounds and it protects us. 
And this is the kind of peace that makes no sense apart from the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, right? In a broken and chaotic world, what sustains me is the peace that comes from knowing Christ is bigger than my problems. He is more sufficient than anything else I look to for help. And he is holding on to me all the way to glory. What a peace. I think the Scottish pastor, John Eady, gives us a really helpful picture of this. Listen to what John Eady writes on this. To know that it is well with me now and that it shall be so forever. To feel that God is my guide and protector while his son pleads for me and his spirit dwells within me. To feel that I am moving along a path divinely prescribed and guarded to join the eternal banquet and the company of all I love and all I live for the emotion produced by such strong conviction is peace, the peace of God. The kind of prayer that is marked by thanksgiving and centered on who God is helps us see our anxieties rightly because it helps us see our Father more clearly. So you can stand firm in this world by trusting in God's power to care for you. Now, one last thing here, if you look back at the end of verse five, you'll see the phrase, the Lord is at hand. Now you can read different scholars and commentaries on this. There are different opinions on whether this, this phrase, this sentence is a concluding thought to verse five or introductory thought to verse six. Which one does it ultimately connect to? Well, I think Paul in his brilliance led by the spirit of God is actually connecting it to both. What he's getting at here, rejoice in the gospel, be gracious to one another because the Lord's return is imminent. And because his return is imminent, be encouraged. Be encouraged because he's coming. So how do we stand firm? We rejoice in the grace of God. We trust in the power of God. And number three, we dwell on the goodness of God. Verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, if you're interested, this is a great verse to do a word study on, to dive into each of the words that Paul uses here. Uh, but for the sake of time, I really want to focus in on one word. That is the word think. The word translated think here in the ESV is actually better translated as the word dwell. Dwell on these things. Paul isn't saying that we should just know some things intellectually like we do random trivia, right? Trivia is interesting, but trivia won't change you. What he means here is dwell continually on these things. Center your mind on them and plant them in your heart. Ponder them so much so that you are changed by them. There's a relationship between our, our minds, what we focus on, and our hearts, what we, what we love. They, they influence one another. Let me show you what I mean. I have a wonderful chart for you. You didn't know you were going to get charts today, uh, but uh, you're welcome. That's my, my uh, gift to you. So notice a couple of things, that our focus shapes what we love. The things that we choose to focus on and give attention to affects our hearts. It matters what we dwell on because they inevitably begin to change the desires of our heart. And in turn, our hearts then direct where we put our focus. We chase the things that we love. We focus on, we give attention to 
the things that we desire. And the more it shapes our heart, the more it becomes the craving of our heart, and the more we give attention to it. And so you see this circular pattern of these things, right? A perfect example of this is lust, is pornography. Right? When that's our focus, it shapes our hearts and our affections, and then it becomes the very thing that our hearts crave. It reflects our heart's desire. And Paul says, no, 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 set your minds, set your hearts, set your focus on worthy things, good things, glorious things, things that draw you near the Lord, not things that would take you away from him. Dwell on things that will shape your heart to be more like Christ's heart. Now, there are certainly sinful things that we need to run from, right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, if your right eye, your, uh, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off throw it away. It's better to to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell, right? There are definitely in this life things that we need to be careful to avoid in life because they are sinful and they will lead us into sin. But there's another danger we need to consider. Friends, I submit to you that one of the greatest dangers to Christians in our day is not immorality, but distraction. We are far too easily preoccupied with lesser things. There are a lot of things that we do in life that distract us from where we ought to be focused. It's not that those things are sinful, but they aren't leading me. They're not helping me draw nearer to God. Sometimes we allow those things to pull us away from better things, things that the Lord would have for us, things that God has called us to. And those things pale in comparison to the glorious and beautiful things that Paul is writing about. I think C.S. Lewis said it best in his book, The Weight of Glory. He wrote it this way. It would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. When we look at the words Paul gives us, we have to ask what fits these descriptions. And ultimately there is only one answer, and that is Jesus himself. Look back at what he writes in verse 8, and notice that this all points to Christ. He is the truth. He is worthy of all honor. He is totally pure and completely holy. He is what the psalmist calls the perfection of beauty shining forth. He is our commendable example. He is supremely excellent. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He is the perfect example. He is the ultimate ultimate embodiment of all the things that Paul tells us to dwell on. And so, friends, do not be distracted or fooled by some paltry surface version of Christianity. Our God is glorious, and there is infinitely more of his majesty and his goodness for us to experience. Do not settle for less. And so we stand firm. We rejoice in the grace of God. We trust in the power of God. We dwell on the goodness of God, and number four, we rest 
in the peace of God. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Notice that Paul is commending simple faithfulness. He tells them to practice the things that they know to do. Be faithful. This is the idea of waiting on the Lord, right? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, sometimes when we're waiting on the Lord or we think we read this in Scripture to wait on the Lord, we, we picture idleness, right? I need God to move in my life. I'm waiting for God to do something here, so I'm just going to sit here and wait. It's like the line at the DMV, right? It just never seems to, to move along. No, if you want to understand waiting on the Lord, don't picture the DMV. Picture the five-star restaurant. Picture the, the best service you've ever had at a restaurant, right? We wait on the Lord like a waiter waits on guests. We're not idle. We're active. We're proactive. We're being faithful in the things that we know to do. Paul says, do the things you know. God is present in the ordinary practices of faithful Christians. And so it's not for nothing as we wait. It's not for nothing that you read your Bible. It's not for nothing that you struggle in prayer. It's not for nothing that we gather with the saints and worship. It's not for nothing that we gather with our small group to care for one another and to pray. It's not for nothing that we hold that crying baby on a Sunday morning, right? We stand firm in the faithful, seemingly ordinary things because God is present in them and he is doing something to shape us through them. But God is also present in the fellowship of faithful believers. He tells them to practice what they have learned and received and heard and seen in him. This is Paul again saying, right, follow me as I follow Christ. To be in community with faithful believers, right? Especially those more mature in the faith. Learn from their example, just as we learn from Paul's example. This is a beautiful picture of gospel community, right? This is why we gather in small groups of people who are in different stages of spiritual maturity. We want to be with people and know people well enough to follow their example. And we want to be the kind of people who are following Christ and saying, I want to be an example. Friends, don't be passive in your faith. No, Paul tells us to practice these things. Be faithful in these rhythms. Be faithful in the things that would draw you closer to God and closer to his people. Now, we're going to hone in on this at the beginning of the year as we focus on some of these rhythms in our Habits of Grace series. A little commercial for you. It's coming. And then in this passage today, we get to the last phrase of this verse. And Paul writes, the end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, look back at verse 7. What does he write? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God, the God of peace. This is not an accident on Paul's part. This is very intentional. Here we see something truly beautiful. And if you hear nothing else, hear this. The path to the peace of God runs straight to the God of peace. The path to the peace of God runs straight to the God of peace. It is in his presence that we find peace. He is the source of our peace. 
in God's presence. His, his presence overwhelms our circumstances, right? It breaks into our circumstances and he brings us peace. But there is, there is no peace of God apart from the God of peace. This is why Paul connects prayer and peace in verse 7. Because in prayer, we come into his presence. In prayer, we're, we're with him. We draw near to him. And only with him do we find that peace. Only with him do our souls find rest. Another word from Tim Keller on this. He writes, the way that you know you're only seeking the peace of God instead of the God of peace is that you only pray or get religious when you're in trouble. If you only seek the blessings of God, but not God, you won't receive the blessings of God. Why? Because God himself is the blessing. The peace that we need to stand firm in a chaotic world comes from the presence of the God of peace who holds that world together and promises to make it new. And so his presence, his peace, bring us rest. So brothers and sisters, rest your hearts in the peace of God by drawing near to this God of peace. It was 1864, one year after his son was severely wounded. Longfellow found himself sitting at his son's bedside, still uncertain of his son's recovery, still mourning his wife's tragic death. He reflected on all the sorrow he'd experienced personally and all the sorrow around him after years of a terrible war. And as he reflected, God broke through and helped him see the bigger picture. And on Christmas morning, he once again sat at his desk and he wrote. And this time Longfellow wrote a poem. Now you're probably familiar with part of this poem, especially at this time of year. But I want us to hear Longfellow's poem in light of his life and in light of our study today. Here's what he writes. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. This is the good news of Christmas. The God of peace has come bringing peace for all who would trust in him. He is the Prince of Peace who will one day put an end to sin and death and usher in a new heavens and a new earth, not marked by sin, but marked by peace. And we, brothers and sisters, get to be ambassadors of this Prince of Peace. 
inviting all of those who don't yet know him to find their peace in him. So do not fear, Christian. God is not dead. He is not asleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, and the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we can have joy today. We can have joy in the Christmas season. We can have joy for all eternity. We can stand firm in a chaotic world because we have the peace of God that comes from knowing this God of peace. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your immeasurable grace and kindness to us. What mercy you have given us to know your peace, to know you, the source of all peace. So God, I pray for my friends in this room who may not know you. I pray that you would draw them, you would make your gospel clear to them. I pray for brothers and sisters in this room struggling for peace. I pray that you would draw near to them, that they would know afresh your presence, that you would make our hearts happy in the Lord, and that joy would rise above any circumstance. And you would help us by your grace to stand firm now all the way to glory. We pray this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.